Welcome to Lead with Kindness, the podcast where we talk about how leading with kindness is totally doable and actually essential to your business enterprise or your group of humans or whatever goal you're working towards in your life. I think that these strategies that we talk about are things you can model and teach and foster and really feel the benefits from. Not just if you want to be a nicer person, which is great if you do, but also if you want to achieve better products, better success, better outcomes in whatever your enterprise is, I do believe that kindness is going to help you a lot. Today we have Andy Baring and Jonathan Brody, who I worked with on Tom Swift and Nancy Drew. Brody, as everybody calls him, was the post supervisor on both Nancy Drew and Tom Swift, invaluable in every single episode that went on the air. And Andy, I know actually from back in the day when we were on the Vampire Diaries together, I was a writer-producer at that time, and Andy was coming up the locations department as a location manager, and then became a director, terrific director, who we hired for Tom Swift, and she did a wonderful job. Before we get further into this, Brody, can you explain to the audience, what is a post-supervisor? What does your job entail? Oh, geez. Well, the quick version is um, once footage is shot on set, it comes to post and I have a team of editors and assistant editors who will assemble the show, cutting it all together. And then the director will come in and take a pass at the cut. It'll then go to the producers. After the producers are happy with the show, it gets sent to the studio and then the network. And we lock the show and, um, and finish it. We do all the sound work, all the color work, all the visual effects. The composers score the show. We mix it and then we deliver it to the network. And there are a lot of elements going on that have totally hard, real time constraints. There's a lot of money attached to every one of these stages. If you go over time, there's extra money. If you don't have everything in place, you can't deliver it to the network and they can't put it on the air. And my favorite Brody anecdote is when uh, we were about to premiere Nancy Drew. Season one, big deal. We've got posters all over town and there's all this advertising online. And, and I was in the hallway and I saw Brody and I was like, Brody, we're going to be premiering tomorrow night. And he says, maybe, because we weren't ready. What was going on at that time, Brody? When, by way of introducing this, <laughs> introducing this anecdote, the topic of this episode is about maintaining calm in the eye of the storm. So what was going wrong at that time, Brody, when you told me maybe we'll premiere tomorrow night? <laughs> I, think we're, I think we were still cutting and we just needed to like put our pencils down and kind of get going, if I remember correctly. That's so funny. To me, it was like, all of this magazine press and everybody's excited and sending us cookies. <laughs> Brody's dealing with, you know, people have more notes for the editors and that takes time to turn around. And then you have to do things inside the digital machines that have a, an episode come out the other end. And that takes time and it can't be rushed. It right. physically can't be rushed. And so if you don't make a deadline, you're stuck. In spite of all that, Brody seemed very calm to me. <laughs> so we'll get back to that and, you know, how to sustain internal calm, which I think is a, a huge component of kindness. And then um, for Andy, one of the things I really loved about working with you when you were directing Tom Swift is how calm you were 
on the set. There were a hundred things going on. It was a really intense episode emotionally for the actors. You know, the storyline had a big pivot. There was a huge revelation and a flashback. But it also touched on a lot of family trauma that resonated with different people in the production. And it was, you know, a very charged atmosphere. But it was also very kind. And there was something very tender about how you worked with the actors. And how did you maintain that calm for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a very vulnerable thing to put yourself out there and be on a show. And on top of that, to dig up some of that trauma, which I know our lead could identify with the storyline. So I just tried to give them a safe space to do that. It started off by connecting with them way before shooting, reaching Mm -hmm. out to them personally, laying the foundation for a personal relationship that I was approachable, Mm -hmm. that communication was open so they could feel safe and therefore give their best performance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I find a lot of the calmness comes from prep. I lay that foundation and prep with with the crew, with the cast, with everybody, so they know when things get hard on the day, they can come to me, we can talk about it and figure it out together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also know that if I'm frazzled emotionally, that bleeds out into the entire crew. So I try to be an anchor for them when they're mm-hmm. really emotionally all over the place and swinging for the fences in these takes. I try to anchor them, keep them calm, and quite frankly, not push it too far. If we've got it in mm-hmm. one or two, we're done. I'm not yeah. going to push it and abuse it. And, and therefore, these actors trust me, and there's kind of a mutual respect there. So I found mm-hmm. that laying that on, you know, down day one mm-hmm. and making myself open and approachable really um, allowed people to open up to me and trust me. And that went a long way when it came time to getting those heavy scenes that you're talking about. Right. There was another thing that you brought up when I was asking you, you know, the bag of tricks you have as a director in mm-hmm. a good way. And you said, slow down to speed up. Yes. Can you explain that one? That is something I had to learn by practice. If you rush, things get missed. There's kind of a franticness to it. And I realized, you know, when you're in that position as the director, you're essentially the quarterback. You're calling the plays. You're setting the tone. So if you can slow down and be very distinctive about what the next step is, you actually go faster than Mm -hmm. if you try to rush people through. Mm -hmm. So that was learned by experience. I definitely originally would knee-jerk and say, hey, come on, guys, we got to get going. But truth be told, the actors don't want to hear that, and they feel rushed, and then their performance is compromised. So I even, I'll tell them we have all the time in the world, even if we don't, Mm -hmm. um, so that they, again, feel safe and uplifted and and what have you. But I've found personally, if I need to really focus in and and keep us moving forward, I do try to slow down and simplify, which seems counterintuitive, but it actually really helps keep the train on the tracks. Mm -hmm. I've been on sets where the directors or the AD or the DP is, just out of their minds and it mm. and it really per, like trickles down to the rest of the crew and everybody's very stressed and so you there is a responsibility to kind of set that tone mm-hmm. all day that we're fine we have a plan we know what we're doing mm-hmm. we're going to get through this no matter what surprises come up mm-hmm. um and and that really did resonate through the crew and mm-hmm. and and truth be told you had built a tremendous crew for oh. me to come in and and work with and and it showed immediately but it was just a joy every day was a joy oh. because you had set that tone from the very top and the culture of the show was already established that we're kind, we listen to each other, we work together, you know, nobody's head's on a spike. And I think it translated to the show. It was a really good experience. I'm so glad to hear that. Back to Brody, and Brody hilariously, before we started rolling on this podcast, said, what am I doing on this show about being calm? And I was like, Brody, I'm going to tell you. Well, at least I can tell you, Brody, that your affect is very calm. And it's very, like, matter-of-fact and Nothing seems to be a crisis. Maybe in your head it is, but when you interact with your editing staff, let's say, and there's a deadline coming up, how do you communicate with them? Because they always seem quite happy to be working with you, and you've got the same team of people in a lot of cases for many years across many shows. So that says something about your leadership. How would you, you know, explain or portray your leadership? I just try to, like, 
be mindful and respectful of everyone's time. Like, you know, there's some tough deadlines that we have to make. And if we aren't able to get something done, you know, we'll, we come up with another plan. The job I do is easy. My editors and assistant editors and everyone else, they have the tough job. They're doing the hard part. Maybe I am calm and I don't, I, I don't know. I, I never felt that calm uh, when I was in it, you know. Huh. Also, to give you credit, your job is not as easy as just kind of hanging back and telling people when the deadlines are. I've seen the spreadsheets that you generate or, you know, like when the deliveries are happening, the overlapping kind of how this editor morphs into that editor and, you know, what the dailies are coming in and we're diverting resources, we're putting man hours, labor hours onto this episode that's got three days worth of dailies because of, you know, X, Y, and Z that happened on set that wasn't anybody's fault. And then everybody at the same time seemed to be getting it done. So... Good job, Brody. I mean, I think you should give yourself a little more credit. <laughs> well, he definitely gave his staff credit. That's good leadership. Yeah, also that's true. I mm-hmm. found when I was a location manager, people would take credit for places I found. So if somebody found a good location, I'll say, thanks, you know, Sarah found this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you give credit to these people that work hard, they feel seen and respected. And he immediately said, I have the easy job. They have the hard, and gave mm-hmm. credit to his team. And right. that goes a long way, I think. That's very true. Were there things that you saw along the way that you thought were toxic and you thought, I'm never going to do that when I'm in charge? Yes. I haven't been sleeping. I was thinking about all these stories. Oh, geez. Um, but since we were talking about time earlier, I was on a show once where people were always getting fired and schedules didn't mean anything. And we were always waiting in my, my department. We were always waiting for the showrunner to show up. We'd hear he'll be there at 10 in the morning and then 10 in the morning turned into three o'clock in the afternoon. And that turned into nine o'clock at night. And then that turned into, you know, the next day. Mm -hmm. And so we just kept falling further and further behind. And it it just killed morale. My guys were just so burnt out and unhappy. And it costs when you're behind like that, there's a ton of unnecessary overtime. And everyone else after us gets so much less time to work on the show, because you have a you have a an air date chasing you. And no one really had any fun. That was one of the worst experience. There was a lot more that went into that, but that's for another pod. (laughs) Right. Just to give the audience an idea of that kind of money expenditure, how much does it cost normally to have an editor work for a day? And then how much does it cost to have them work when, when they go into their overtime? It can be it can be thousands of dollars depending on how long how long they work. I'll give you a, a, a quick version of just burning money. Mm-hmm. When we mix the show, we do all the sound work and we do a, we mix the show. We do a playback for the producers. And when you're on a mix stage, it's a big fancy room with all sorts of equipment and expensive mixers. And that room is about ten dollars a minute. And my playbacks were supposed to start at two, three in the afternoon. And my showrunner would show up at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Oh, my God. And we're just, so the room was just sitting there, <laughs> racking, up, racking up a ton of overtime. And then we'd have to work until 3, 4 in the morning after the playback. It was just crazy. Wow. So there were just tons and tons of overages. Right. And uh, it just, it, people were just burnt out. Right. You know, it's just not sustainable. Did anyone ever say to the showrunner, hey, don't show up? At 10 at night? Yes. Um, <laughs> the problem is the studio didn't put their foot down. Mm-hmm. The studio, you know, that should have been the studio's job. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have a hit show, right, the studio executives kind of look the other way. 
Yeah, that is frustrating. And it's kind of like, I guess that'd be this, the next topic of conversation. I was talking with some of our other guests about how to hold people accountable. And it is very difficult if the studio's like, well, whatever, you know, we don't care what goes into the, the sausage factory as long as a hit show comes out the other side. And they'll put up with all sorts of intangible abuses of emotions and mental health. And they will also put up with vast budget overages to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars if the hit show keeps making them more money than they're losing, which is, as you say, not sustainable, but it does go on sometimes. And it's just mind-boggling to me. It's very frustrating. But I I think yeah. sometimes that at certain places, it's like, oh, well, that means the person's a genius. <laughs> if they're running things so poorly, it must be because their genius cannot be contained by the hands of the clock or something, you know? I don't get it personally. Let's go to Andy for a second. You know, we'll come back to that that topic. But Andy, when you were coming up as a location manager, were there things that you saw that similarly, like somebody's unkind, somebody's unprofessional, it costs the show money? Yeah, I too thought about this a lot and, and feel like the question is really when was it not that way? As a location manager, you do, you're privy to a lot of like uh, closed door conversations and stuff that happens on scouts and whatever. I wanted to say there was ego in the room, but it was actually entitlement. Mm. The director, even if the writer was there, the producer, everyone felt entitled to their agenda, how they saw it going. And ultimately, most of the time, the producers win, right? Because they have mm -hmm. the power out there. You asked for what cost the show money. And I thought about a movie I did as a location, key assistant location manager, huge movie, big time stars on it. And I would do 22 episodes, 10 months of Vampire, and then a movie over the summer, which made me crash and burn. It was not good mm -hmm. for my health. But this manager I was working under was incredibly abusive. He would Changed the hours on my time card. Mm. He um, once picked me up by my shirt collar in a what? restaurant. Yeah, we were serving the crew lunch, and he said, you're the last person to eat, and yanked <gasps> me up. And I was in such shock. I mean, I'm a very strong, independent woman, but, like, that literally, it shocked me. I didn't know how to react in front of all of these people. And this is a movie with Kate Winslet, Woody Harrelson. I mean, this is not a small indie movie. This is a big movie. Um, and he... I noticed huge chunks of my hair were coming out in oh the shower. God. And oh I, my God. they were like, yeah, you have alopecia. And I'm like, I don't think I do. I think this is stress. Like that to me was a sign I had to get out. Mm. Um, and in the office, he made a joke about Sarah Jones. And I got up and walked out and, and never talked to any of them again. What that led me to think of is a lot of these decisions can, can cost money. But in location management, the wrong decision costs people their lives. It's a safety issue. Right. So I would fight tooth and nail with producers about, there's a tornado out there. We right. can't move right now. Or... I'm sorry, I have to give the freeway back. Right. I can't stay here another hour. Even if you want to, people are going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. So there was, the stakes were very high in locations. You took it very seriously. And I still think that way as a director, because I think we all feel very safe on set. It feels real comfy and we settle into video <laughs> and all that stuff. But truth be told, somebody's there setting all that up. And I took that responsibility really seriously. And that was the biggest price you could possibly pay was somebody getting hurt. Mm -hmm. um, so I made sure, you know, if we're out in the freezing in the middle of a field, we got to have warming tents. We got to have buses down the street in case there's a lightning strike so we can all get in and be somewhere safe. Like there was all these kind of steps beyond to keep the crew safe. Right. Um, and that to me, I had to fight a lot for those sometimes. Wow. Um, and Sarah's death, because we were in Georgia, did mm -hmm. elevate that. Like you could basically say, we're not going to let this happen again. And, and producers were responsive. But I still on that movie, you know, he wanted me to use PAs instead of security guards because they were cheaper. Oh my gosh. And I said, they're not bonded. This is illegal. Um, right. So, but he, w this, this guy was willing to do anything to save money on his budget to look good for the producers. And, and I realized I can't be associated with this. And, and it was the only job I've ever quit. Wow. Yeah. So it, it went, it took toxic to another level where it affected my health. And I felt 
the crew wasn't safe. And right. um, we got together as managers after Sarah and said, what do we do if we tell the producers don't go do this and they do it anyway? Yeah. What did um, you come up with? Well, they suggested, like, we literally call the police. Uh-huh. So that's a big deal. I've obviously never had to do that. But they said if you were in the same position where you said don't go out on this train track and they're going anyway at that point – you have to turn on them and call the cops to do your job. Or in writing, say, you're not allowed to go out there. I'm And that's ultimately what happened with that manager. He had writing tons of emails saying, don't go. And they went anyway. So he wow. wasn't found liable. But I think oh um, it's, it's, it's a part that people take for granted, that safety, especially out in the world, that I took very seriously. And that, to me, was more costly than any overtime um, yeah. was if somebody got hurt. So that And I was surprised at how often I had to fight for safety at, on certain sets. That's so dismaying. I'm deeply offended that this person made that joke. Me too. Holy cow. Yeah. For the audience who doesn't know, Sarah Jones was a crew member on a film called Midnight Rider, and there was an incident on a train track in Georgia. The incident on the train tracks resulted in Sarah's death and a number of people getting really badly injured and traumatized. And the court found the director guilty of something that, in my mind, you know, was kind of a lesser charge. Yeah. I forget what it was, but... It was um, disappointing. Yeah, it was his fault that she died. At least to the, you know, even in the eyes of the law, that's what came down. But it was willful disregard for safety. It was right. just unbelievable callousness, and all for the sake of trying to save a little bit of money. At any rate, I'm glad that you take it seriously. And I actually hadn't thought about that in this question. You know, well, like what the impact is. I've seen. I've seen. I'm not kidding. Millions wasted, but that feels trivial, right? Compared right. to somebody falling asleep on the way home or whatever. Yeah. So I was just thinking that's the ultimate price for toxic leadership is people get hurt. And in our industry, everyone feels so replaceable and expendable. Mm. Um, so it's unique in that sense that, like, if you won't do it, somebody else. I've been told that on Friday night you're working tomorrow morning. Hey, I'm not available. Well, somebody else will be will replace you. Mm -hmm. So there's that kind of constant threat of. I need to keep my job in a culture of fear where you're afraid mm -hmm. to report people and you don't want the backlash. And so that was really interesting to navigate as I was coming up in locations. Right. Yeah, that is really sad. I mean, I think the double-edged sword of loving what we do so much is that we fear that it will be taken away from us. And we do know that there are other people who also love it and maybe they'll work for less money or worse conditions. Coming back to Brody. I find you calm as a person. Are there things that you have in your kind of daily habits that foster this calm? Do you meditate? Do you take walks? Uh, this is just the life of Brody. I'm very curious. Not to intentionally to be calm, but I think, you know, I have two 11-year-olds and I think that's a big part of it. Trying to be calm and, and kind and, you know, so that they do that in, in their lives. But, you know, I exercise a lot. I'll jump on my bike and go out for a few hours and just be by myself, you know, to sort of think and figure things out. Working remote the last few years has helped a lot because if I'm not in the middle of something, I can go outside and get some fresh air and go for a walk. I haven't done much meditating or, or any anything like that. That's so interesting. I wonder what that would be like. One of the things that I often get the writers to do. In fact, I insist on it when we uh, when we have writer's rooms. We start with meditation. I'm going to take a little detour into mindfulness meditation, which is one of the ways that we established the culture at Nancy Drew and Tom Swift. One of the first things that we did with both rooms was have a mindfulness meditation coach come in and lead a workshop for a half day about the importance of meditation and, you know, the value of mindfulness. Andy, do you do anything for internal calm? I was going to say, um, it's interesting you talked, first of all, 
bravo, because I, if my job started off with a mindfulness clinic, <laughs> I would be like, all right, I'm in the right place. But yeah, I something I do in high pressure, which came from athletics. I was a shot putter in college, which was interesting because you were an individual under pressure, just you, no teammates, right? So breathing, like deep breath in and, and six seconds out, like you're blowing on soup is what I was taught. Hmm. But that, if you do kind of heavy, deep breathing, um, Every day, it's it's amazing, kind of what uh, what kind of calm it brings into your life, and then you're kind of trained to do that in those high pressure moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing, and then the other thing I was going to say is therapy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. has been life changing for me. So I, I recommend therapy to everybody because I think it does make you, if nothing else, a better communicator, which is really valuable on set. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. I had a friend who was a psychologist say that, you know, there's a misconception that therapy is for people who have, like, big problems or you need to be fixed. And it's like, no, it's more like you can be in pretty good shape and decide to join a gym anyway. Yes. It just makes you in better shape and it makes you more aware of your body and, you know, it keeps you kind of primed for other things that may come along. Right. It's not something that... I don't know what other fields of work. In the writer's room, people will talk very openly about their therapists, which I think is great. And I, I don't know if that's true across industries. <laughs> On set, I don't think so. On set, Maybe not. Yeah, it's it's a huge swath of humanity, which I love, mm-hmm. that we have our, our drivers from the country and our grips mm-hmm. and our makeup people. And so, yeah, there there's a I, – I feel like, quite frankly, everyone's working so much they don't have time for therapy. That's so probably I, true. I had to make a point to find someone that did the weekends or what have you, but – it's possible like mm-hmm. for you to get help and, and to talk to somebody that a lot of time just tells me, hey, Andy, this is totally normal. Right. And, and you feel like, oh, okay, I'm doing fine. Yeah. I think it's important for people to know whether they're in therapy or not. You know, as a leader, you can let them know if you're experiencing something, that means you're a normal human being. Exactly. You know, like those feelings, I get it. I would feel the same way. And there's nothing wrong with you for feeling that way. Right. You know, and then you can kind of go from there. What do you think, Brody? I feel like this is my therapy. <laughs> like you're so you you are always so calm, and what you say makes so much sense. Maybe I'll have to look into that. <laughs> Brody, you're the best, <laughs> and I really appreciate you coming in, Andy, and also Brody to share your insights and your perspectives and experiences about how in yourself how to foster calm, how to spread that out to other people, and how you can be a better leader with the calmness that leads to like taking into account all the humans in the equation. Thanks. Thank you. So now, guess what? I have an added bonus for you in this episode. I wanted to introduce the idea of mindfulness very specifically through the coach who I've asked to start up the writer's rooms at Nancy Drew and Tom Swift. And when I lead the writer's rooms, I also start the day with a mindfulness meditation that's literally a recording of this woman who you're about to hear from, Christiana Wolf. And it's a way for the writers, after, you know, five minutes of housekeeping announcements or what did you have for dinner last night or, oh, my God, this great movie's coming out, to have us kind of center ourselves and start the day like now we're going to work. Because I've found a lot of writers' rooms spend 40 minutes, two hours, just kind of talking about random stuff that has nothing to do with the show. And people are slowly unraveling internally because they're like, this means I'm not going to go home on time today because we haven't started work yet. So I like to have a sort of starting bell, which is a meditation bell. And then we work, we start on time, we end on time. But prior to all of that, let's talk about what mindfulness and calm even is. And some of the benefits of calm are obvious, like the ability to focus and do strategic planning or getting centered to open up your creative flow and innovate to do your best work. In my mind, one of the most important things that mindfulness gives you the tools for is self-soothing. I believe it's your responsibility as a professional adult to manage your own emotions. Because refusing to regulate your own internal turmoil and using people around you as a punching bag for stress, that's what a child does. 
That lack of calm will make people question whether they can sustain working for you. How much better are you going to succeed if the people you lead aren't planning their exits? So, Christiana, welcome to Lead with Kindness. And could you tell us what mindfulness is first? Hi, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Basically, it is being actually in the present moment being with the experience of whatever is present in this moment, because only when we know what is present in this moment, we can respond to it instead of just like kind of pretty much mindlessly on autopilot reacting. So like the scenarios that you just mentioned, they're usually people don't really mean to like dump on other people. It's just something that they do because there isn't enough awareness there in the present moment. And so it's just like coming to yourself and doing that just like, coming back to the breath, taking a few longer breaths, and then maybe just noticing like maybe you're tense or you're tired or you're agitated. Once we know, we can just say like, oh, that is what is here right now. And then if we're connecting, for example, with the breath, then we can do what you said is we can start to self Soothe, meaning I can take responsibility for what is here and actually help my nervous system to downregulate into a state that is more calm, more open, and then with all the good things that you also just mentioned. That's so cool. So when you are leading a mindfulness meditation, what's the outside structure that you're doing? And then guess what? We're going to do a minute of guided mindfulness. I bet you didn't think you were in for this mindfulness meditation, but what's the kind of superstructure of a mindfulness meditation? I mean, it's just really the most important part is to become present. So coming out of autopilot, where I'm usually just thinking, like we call that rehashing or rehearsing. So we're either like going over something that happened before, or we're anticipating that is something that is going on in the future and just coming to this moment right now. And it can be as simple as just becoming aware what you're seeing. And you go like, oh, I'm actually in this room. While before I was kind of in this room, but not really. And then I can feel like my feet on the ground and I can feel my breath. And suddenly I'm really here and available for what is here and then what's up next. I love that. Let me tell you, if you practice mindfulness and regulate your internal calm, you won't send an angry email that ends up destroying trust. You won't overshare on social media in a way that gives the impression that you lack self-control and makes people think twice about hiring you in the future. Internal calm leads to better performance and keeping business relationships intact, which over time gets you more success and more money. So look at it that way. (laughs) But Christiana, would you now do us the favor of leading us in a one-minute guided mindfulness meditation? I'm actually very happy to do that. Yeah. What I'm asking you to do is just really start out with just finding a posture right now that feels comfortable. So for me, it's just like leaning back in my chair, And you can close your eyes if you want to, or just lowering the gaze and starting by just feeling your feet on the ground, feeling your seat, feeling where your back is in touch with the back of the chair. And so we're moving from thinking into sensing into feeling. And then inviting you now to... Find the sensations of breathing in your body. And it can be helpful to just take a couple of longer, deeper breaths as you do this. So as a way to really connect to breathing. 
Noticing what that feels like. Again, sensing, not thinking. And if you notice that your mind goes back into thinking, you can just gently bring it back to the sensations of the breath in this moment. And it's as simple as that. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Christiana, for giving one example of how to center yourself and just notice your breathing and slow your mind down so that you're not reacting. Instead, you are taking in where you actually are and figuring out a measured response. Really appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being part of our Lead with Kindness podcast today. I hope you come back next week when I'm going to speak with Brad Marquez, who's a TV writer, producer, and former MMA fighter and a former video game animator department lead, and also Akima Brown, who founded Real Families for Change. And both of them are going to talk about what it looks like when we hold bullies in the workplace accountable and how do we work with them to be aggressively kind to change their behavior. Thanks. Thanks.